me welcome you into week number two, week two of this four-week uh, teaching emphasis where we're talking about getting a grip. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that as we were stepping into the week of Thanksgiving, it seemed really appropriate that we would begin this series by thinking about stepping into thanksgiving or gratitude, learning to get a grip on gratitude. What does it look like for us to live with an attitude of gratitude? Let me remind you just briefly of what we learned last week. You'll recall that we were in Matthew chapter number six, where Jesus said to us this really famous statement that we ought to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not in earth. And he told us why that was important, because where our, remember what we did with our hands last week, where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. He said that we should lay up treasures in heaven, and that we do that by investing our lives. As we're living in the earth, living on the earth, in this world, in this life, that the focus of our life should be eternity, and that as we invest our time and our energy and our resources and our passions and our gifts into eternity, then we can do that knowing that the needs that we have while we're on this planet, in this life, God will meet those needs. I don't have to spend my whole life, all of my energies, gathering things in this life. I need to invest my time and my energy into eternity. Now remember, I said to you last week, there's nothing wrong, and Jesus never indicates that there's anything wrong with accumulating earthly wealth. He simply says, let your treasure be in heaven. That's where your heart's going to be. Let your balance sheet in heaven be greater than your balance sheet on the earth. So we should invest our lives in eternity. And in that conversation in Matthew 6, Jesus said, now as you're investing in eternity, I know you've got needs down here, food, clothing, shelter. He talked about all those things. He said, I know you need those things, but here's the deal. He says, in fact, five times in Matthew 6, he says, don't take any thought about those things. It means don't be anxious about them. Don't worry about those things. Why shouldn't I worry about the things that I need? Because I have a heavenly father. And my heavenly father has promised that he will meet all of my earthly and material needs. This was the promise of Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things, these earthly needs, shall be added unto you. And so the big idea that we, that we were really embracing last week was this, that when we invest our lives, when we get a grip on this idea that I need to invest my life in eternity, then God will provide all of my needs down here. Suddenly, my daily provisions don't depend upon me, God is going to provide those things. And so here's what happens. Anxiety and fear begins to diminish and gratitude begins to rise. Do you see? It's no longer me working to have what I need. It's me spending my life focused on eternity, knowing my father will meet these things. And now I can just live with gratitude. I can just say, thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to me. Thank you, God, that you're going to provide everything that I need. So anxiety begins to, to recede and this gratitude begins to rise. And so as we get a grip on gratitude, knowing that God is going to provide all that we need, the next logical thing that happens, the next logical step is that I can then take the next kind of thrilling step of deciding to be 
generous, of deciding to live with generosity. Because I can be generous to others if I know that my father has my back, right? If I know that my father's taking care of me, then I can be generous with others. Today, that's what we're going to talk about. Jot it down somewhere in your notes. We're going to learn about getting a grip on generosity. Getting a grip on generosity. Now, you've got your Bibles open to, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm only going to read three verses to begin with. Follow along beginning in verse number 6, please. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse number 6. But this I say, Paul writes, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, not of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able. Would you say those words with me? Just read them out loud with me. And God is able. If you believe it, say it one more time. And God is able. Praise God, he is. And God is able to make All grace abound toward you, so that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now, I want you to take your pen if you're a note taker. You've got a pen in your hand. I want you to circle in verse 6 two words that are actually repeated. Each of these words shows up twice in this verse. First of all, the word sparingly. Would you circle that? Sparingly. And then the second one would be the opposite, bountifully. Circle those two words, sparingly and bountifully. Now, now Paul is using a metaphor, uh, right? We all understand that. He's, He's drawing a picture. He's talking about giving. He's talking about being generous. And to illustrate how generous we should be, he says, you know, when a farmer goes out Uh, to plant, if he plants a few seeds, sparingly planting seeds, he can expect he's going to get a sparing harvest, right? The word sparingly means stingily, literally stingily, or just a little bit. He says some people plant sparingly. Then he says other people plant or sow bountifully. Other people just put out a lot of seed. And they can know that when they put out a lot of seed, then they're going to reap a bountiful harvest. So he uses these two descriptors, sparingly sowing or giving and bountifully sowing or giving, in order to draw the picture for us of what our giving looks like. So answer the question, how are you doing with generosity? What does your giving look like? When it comes to the, to the issue of generosity, are you sparing or are you bountiful? When it comes to the issue of generosity, would you say that you are tight-fisted or are you open-handed? Uh, to use what he says in our text, verse number seven, when it comes to generosity, are you one who gives grudgingly Or do you give cheerfully? When it comes to to giving, are you miserly or are you generous? 
And since it's almost Christmas, let me just use the classic Christmas carol illustration. When it comes to generosity, are you Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of the movie? (laughs) Or are you Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of the movie? Which are you? Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's teaching us that we need to live with generosity. Now, when you study the scriptures on this topic of generosity, uh, the, the single word in the original Greek that is translated into English New Testaments is translated variously with these words. Words like bountiful, we saw that in our text, bountifully is a word which means generously. Another word, English word, that is used to translate this Greek idea is the word readiness in the King James, readiness. And it means eagerness, that when it comes to generosity, we're eager. We're the first ones. We're jumping to give. He says that's what it means to be generous. Uh, He also uses the word in the King James, liberality. That's the way it's translated. That when it comes to giving, we're liberal in our giving. And then, of course, the word generous uh, that we're talking about, the word generosity. Regardless of how it's translated, here's what the word means. When the Bible talks about being generous, it means literally to be good at giving. I love that, that definition. To be good at giving. Can I ask you, are you good at giving? The, the Bible says we should be good at giving. It means to share with others willingly or enthusiastically. You know, when we teach our little ones, what what do we have to teach our little ones when they're growing up? We don't have to teach them to be selfish, do we? That that comes very naturally to them. We teach them to, say it, to, to share. Yeah, we teach them to share. We're now saying, along with our children, who are teaching their children, Tracy and my grandchildren, we say things like, sharing is caring. Isn't that a nice little quip? Sharing is caring. But children have to be taught to care for their friends or cousins and to share willingly with them. And so so Paul says, and the New Testament repeats thoroughly and, and throughout, that we should get to be good at giving. Now, I have to tell you, I so think that this definition of being good at giving defines Brookstone Church in so many ways. By the way, do you know how many pastors tremble in their Sunday morning shoes to preach a message on giving. Do you know? They hate to preach on giving because they know people are going to get mad. I have been so excited to preach this message on giving. I couldn't wait to get here this morning. But part of the reason is because I know you and you're generous people. I've said it to you over and over again, and it's, it's my heart, it's my goal, that we will become the most generous church In Western North Carolina, we will just be known for that to the glory of God. That that church is an open-handed church. They have a generous spirit and they're generous with all that they have. I think that does describe so many of us in so many ways. But of course, we all need to learn and grow and so we're going to do that together from this passage. Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers, challenging them to be generous in their giving. Let me give you a little bit of background of the passage before we dive into the text and draw out some principles. He's challenging challenging them to give, but what is it that he's challenging them to give to? What is the need? Let me show you. Hold your finger in 2 Corinthians 9. Turn back a few pages to the book of Acts. 
So we're going to go to Acts chapter number 11. Acts chapter 11. And uh, many of you will recognize that this is the passage where we read about the growing church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch is special for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that the Bible says that Christians, or that the believers were called Christians first in Antioch. That the very first time the word Christian was used to describe a follower of Jesus uh, was in the city of Antioch. Well, look at verse number 27. I'm in Acts 11 and verse 27. The Bible says, In in these days there came prophets from Jerusalem and unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus. And he signified by the Spirit, or spoke by the Spirit, that there should be a great dearth or a great famine throughout the whole world which would come to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar or Claudius, the Roman emperor. Now, here's the thing. We know when Claudius was the emperor of Rome. It was from uh, the early 40s AD, around 42 AD, for about a dozen years until around 54 or 55 AD. Those were the years in which Claudius was the emperor. And we also now know from secular history that there were three great famines during those years of his reign and that one of those famines was centered in Judea where Jerusalem was. This would be the famine that Agabus was speaking about. He said there's going to be a famine that is going to come during the days of Claudius Caesar. Verse number 29, Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief, an offering, unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. That's the Jerusalem church. Which they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now this is a formative moment in Saul's life. Because remember, Saul has recently, in recent years, been converted when you come to Acts 11. He was converted to Christ in Acts 9. He's just now partnered with Barnabas, and and in chapter 13, they're going to begin their ministry together. These are the early formative years of his ministry, and he's watching Christians be generous to other Christians and meet the needs of the Jerusalem saints who were suffering. And so they receive that offering, and then as, as Saul becomes Paul and his ministry grows and, and he begins to travel through the empire and establish churches, he continues to uh, collect offerings to send back to the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering. In fact, when you read through the letters of Paul, numerous times you see him referring to this offering that he has collected. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, that's what he's doing. He's collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem, who are suffering, who are, who are hurting because of the famine. He's challenging them to be generous and to give to those folks. And apparently they listened. Apparently they, they were willing to give because later in his letter to the Romans, Paul writes these words, for you see the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, um, Achaia is the region where Corinth is the capital, for the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. So he's writing to the Corinthians, I want you to take up this offering and be generous. We're going to send it to the folks in Jerusalem. Later on, when he's in Jerusalem, he's now delivered that offering, and he tells the Romans, I'm coming to you, but I needed to come here first to deliver this offering. Okay, So they followed his instruction, and we need to do the same. Now let's talk about this issue of generosity and learn 
from Paul's teaching. Write this down uh, if you're a note taker. So important to know. I want you to get this as a principle in your life that you'll never forget. Here it is. It is that generous giving, generous giving is God's plan for his people. Generous giving is God's plan for his people. You know, throughout the history of the church, and particularly in more recent history, and particularly in the Western church, pastors have oftentimes been mocked and maligned and called things like money grubbers or they're only interested in money. They're always talking about giving and always wanting us to give. And that criticism has been leveled at pastors and quite honestly, I've been the pastor here 30 years. You don't do anything for 30 years and not experience uh, things like that. And so over the years, more than once, I've been accused of that as I've called our church to give to particular needs and initiatives that God has called us to. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to hear me. That while there are some shysters out there, to be sure, there are some, some fake Uh, pastors who lack integrity, who would fleece God's sheep for their own personal gain, the overwhelming majority of God's shepherds, when they call people to give, they are in fact fulfilling their call. They are doing exactly what God has called them to do because this is God's plan for his people. I want you to hear me. That when we talk about generous giving in the church, it is not a religious con. It is, in fact, God's plan for funding his work in the world. And we should understand that this is God's plan. Now, in this instance, the need that God needed to fund was to take care of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Remember, they were poor because of the famine. They were also poor Because remember, these are Jewish men and women who have come to faith in Jesus. And do you know what would happen to them when they would put their faith in Christ? They would be rejected by their synagogue. Many of them would be rejected by their family. They would lose their place in society. They would lose perhaps their, their source of income. They were destitute. And the only people they had to draw from and get help from was each other, the church. Because of the famine, the church was poor. And so they needed believers outside of Judea to give them assistance. They, they were hungry. They were hurting and they had a need. Well, think about it. How might God have met that need? If, if he has some saints in Jerusalem that have a need, what could God have done to meet that need? Any number of things. God could have rained down breakfast, lunch, and dinner from the sky, couldn't he? He could have, they could have walked out of their houses in the morning. There's all the food they need laying outside their front door. He had done it before. He did it for the, in the wilderness when the manna rained down from heaven. He could do that. Maybe God could have decided that the way he was going to provide for them would be like he did for Daniel. He would say to them, you don't have much food, but I'm going to take the meager food that you have and I'm going to let it so give you so much nutrition, you're going to be healthier and stronger than you've ever been on a full diet. That's what he did for Daniel. A little food, a little vegetables, and Daniel was fairer and fatter, the King James says, more healthy. Than, than any of his contemporaries? He could have done that. God could have 
serendipitously placed coins in the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem and nobody would have seen them except those poor Jerusalem saints. They could have just been walking along. There's a quarter. There's a Roman denarii. There's some money. There's what I They could have just picked it up because God miraculously hit it there. He had done that for Peter when he put a fish, a coin in a fish's mouth. Do you understand? Here's my point. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Here's the point. God can meet any need at any time in any way that he sees fit. And he sometimes does meet needs by miraculous means. But his plan, let me say it this way, his M.O. is that he meets needs not in the seeming miraculous, but in the mundane of calling his people to give generously. That's his plan for doing it. And if you wonder about that, you can just read through the scriptures and you'll find that's the way God does it. Generally, we typically talk about the manna and the coin in the fish's mouth and those things that I was talking about. Those are the miracles that stand out. But listen, think through most instances where God provides in the, in the scripture. It's just through giving. When the, when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they needed a tabernacle so they could gather and worship God and God could meet with them in the tabernacle, you know what? They, God could have dropped a tabernacle from heaven. Just, there it is. He could have done that, but he didn't. Moses said, we need to build a tabernacle. We need to make some, some gold uh, ornaments. We, we need some, some uh, uh, tents and some, some tapestries. And So take what you've got. Take your earrings and your bracelets and your, and your fabrics and donate them. They did. When the second temple needed to be built, the first temple rebuilt, and they had been living as slaves for 70 years, and now they were going to rebuild the temple. How were they going to do it? Where would they get the resources to rebuild the temple? Throughout all the tribes, they began to gather what they could, and they gave it so the temple could be rebuilt. Even, even in the miraculous multiplication where Jesus fed uh, upwards of 15,000 people. He did it not with bread and fish from out of thin air. He took an offering. You remember? The disciples said, these people are hungry. Send them away. And Jesus said, sit down, you feed them. What are we going to feed them? Take up an offering. What have we got? A couple of fish, a few pieces of bread. That's it. One little boy's lunch. Jesus, that's enough. Bring it. Give it to me, and I'll multiply. If y'all are tracking with me, would you shout amen? This is the way God does it. It's the way he has always done it. And here's what I know, that if this is God's plan, it's the best plan. And so I want you to hear me say that when God calls us to give generously to meet every need in his kingdom plan, it is the best way to get it done. Now, why would that be? Jot this down. Here's, Here's one reason. It's the best way to do it because giving allows all of us to be a part of God's work. I love this. Sure, God can rain it down from heaven. Absolutely. God God can do miraculous things like manna and things like that. He can do it. But here's the cool thing. When he says, I've got this, this work to be done, I want you to give so it can be done, guess what he's doing? The God who can meet any need at any time in any way without me is saying to me, come on, son, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And that's the beauty of giving generously because it allows us to all partake in the work that God is doing. Look at chapter number nine and verse number eight. He says, 
and God is able to make all grace. Uh, pop quiz. How much grace is God able to make abound? Do I say it? All grace. God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you having, so you always, how, how often? Always having all sufficiency. How much sufficiency? All sufficiency. In how many things? In all things. That this God can provide for us in such a way that we can abound in every good work. We can participate. And do you know what? When it comes to giving generously, everybody, everybody can participate. Turn back one page to 2 Corinthians 8. He's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to them and he's telling them about the Christians in Macedonia, places like Philippi. He's writing to them and listen to what he says in verse number um, one, chapter eight, verse one, more of her brothers. I want you to be aware of, I want you to know about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction. The churches in Macedonia are hurting themselves. They're suffering themselves. Verse number two goes on to say, they, they are in deep poverty. They're struggling themselves. But even in their suffering and even in their poverty, they have an abundance of joy because they get to participate in what God is doing to bless the saints in Jerusalem. Verse number three, for to their credit, to their power, to their ability, I bear them record, even beyond their ability, they were willing to give of themselves and they urged us to take the gift. You can see this, can't you? They're bringing their gifts and they're going, take it, take it, send this to the people in Jerusalem. Even the poor Macedonians could participate. This is the beauty. Of, of generous giving. The generosity for one person who has great abundance might be this much, and generosity for the person who has very little might be this much. But it has nothing to do with the amount. It has to do with the all-in participation of the body of Christ. We all get to be a part. When we give, we are being a part of God's work, and that's why this is the best way. Now, by the way, I'm going I'm to stop for just a second and take a little bit of an aside. I want you to hang with me for a minute because this is not directly in the text. But I think it's a pretty important point to make at this juncture. This is the reason. What Paul is talking about here in this blessing that we have to give so that we can participate with God's work in the world is the reason that of all the economic systems in the world, if you take the big three, capitalism, socialism and its, sec its first cousin, communism. If you take those three uh, economic systems or all the economic systems of the world, here's what you should know. Capitalism is the most biblical economic system under which we should operate. Now let me tell you why I say that. Because in a capitalist economy, all capital or wealth, or possessions, is privately owned. And the government stays small and hopefully insignificant and out of the way. And so the people then take the resources that God provides to us and we put them at risk. We, we invest them, we build businesses, we plant gardens, we do whatever. And when we invest or risk that capital, we know this, 
We need God's blessing on what we do. It's the reason that in the early days of our nation, they would plant a garden and at the end of every row, they would kneel and say, God, give the rain and the sun and let the seed come forth. God, we can do our part. But as we say, I depend on you. In the capitalist economy, we invest it, we build, and we trust God to profit or to produce for us. And then as we gather in that capital, then we partner with God as we give. That's capitalism. Socialism, in socialism, and certainly in communism, the government replaces God. Suddenly, now, capital is not owned by private individuals or businesses. Capital, mostly or ultimately all of it, is owned by the government. And the government then doles that out to the people, thereby replacing the need for God. If y'all tracking with me, say amen. So socialism says you don't need God, you've got the government. And that means that the people living in a socialist society don't need a good work ethic. They don't have to understand the biblical command to work, to earn a living. They don't need to understand innovation or creativity or an entrepreneurial spirit or or building something with excellence to the glory of God. They don't have to do any of those things because government has become their provider. And nobody in a socialist culture needs to give anything because government is ultimately going to provide what is needed by everyone. And so I would suggest to you that you should be concerned, as an American Christian, you should be concerned about the slide in our rising generations and in government away from a capital, capitalistic economy into a socialistic economy. It is a, just a one more step away from biblical truth. Now, you don't owe me anything for that. That's just a gift to you this morning. All right? The second thing I want you to know about this being God's plan, giving generously being God's plan, why it's the best is because when we give, it builds community. Giving builds community. Uh, Look at chapter number nine of 2 Corinthians and verses number one and two. He says in verse one, I don't even really need to write to you about this. I know the willingness of your heart To give, verse 2, in fact, I have been boasting about you and your giving to those of Macedonia that Achaia or those in Corinth were ready a year ago. He says, your zeal has provoked many. Your generosity has provoked generosity among other people. It's community. That when one gives, another wants to participate. And when three come along, three more want to help. And when a hundred are participating, a hundred more want to come along and help because we're doing it together. You know, honestly, I couldn't preach this point without drawing the illustration for you of our new student center that we're getting ready to break ground on. If Buncombe County will ever give us a permit, we're going to break ground on it. We're waiting. But we're getting ready to do it. And that student center, almost $2 million to build, is fully funded. You've already committed to pay for it when it's done, before it's done. It's paid for. But do you know why? Amen. You ought to clap about that. Here's why. Because 400 families in our church said, I want to participate. That's like 60, 65% of our church. If it was 20% or or 10%, we couldn't do it. 
But there's a beauty, isn't there? There's, an, there's a community, there's a fellowship when we come together to accomplish what God wants us to do. And every time you walk by that building as it's being built and you come in, you'll be able to go, you know what, by the grace of God, I'm a part of that, man. Not by myself, I couldn't do it by myself, but there's hundreds of us by God's grace. And we're getting it done. Giving is God's plan and it's the best plan because it builds community. He goes on in verses 12 and 14 of chapter number nine to say, and by the way, the fact that you're giving to these believers in Jerusalem, you know what? Man, they're gonna, not only are their needs gonna be met, but they're gonna praise God. They're gonna grow in praise because of you and they're gonna pray for you and they're gonna have deep affection for you. He says the fact that you're giving to them is gonna build the unity and the community of the fellowship of believers. That's the second reason it's the best way. It let's us participate in the builds community. One final reason that God's plan for giving generously is the best way to fund his work is because giving demonstrates our love for God. Giving demonstrates our love for God. I'm going to say very little about this, but I want to show you what Paul said. Chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others. Because others are giving, I want to challenge you to give. Why? To prove the sincerity of your love. There you go. He said, when you love, you give. And when you give, it demonstrates the sincerity of your love. You know what? I understand this now more than I ever have because I'm a granddaddy. Somebody has said that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. It's impossible. What I give to my grandchildren, my daughter-in-law sitting in here, she'll testify to this. What I give to my grandchildren is stupid. It's just stupid. I don't mean that it's like spending tons of money. I just mean they don't need it. And it's chocolate at bedtime and things like that, right? But you know what? I, those little boogers, I love them so much. I can't get them in my presence without wanting to give them something. And when we love God and his work, it produces this desire to give. Well, generous, uh, generous giving is God's plan. All right, now let me move on to wrap up here in just a couple of minutes. The second point of this passage from 2 Corinthians 9 I want you to get is that generosity is a choice that we make. I've taught you this before. Generosity is a choice that we make. Now clearly it's God's choice. We've, we've been talking about that. It's God's choice. It's God's plan. But is it your plan? Is generosity your plan? I just want to say to you, it is only your plan if you have chosen it. Because generosity does not come naturally to the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. Stinginess comes naturally to us. In fact, here's a fundamental fact of life. Write it down somewhere. We are all born stingy. It's true. If you doubt it, volunteer to serve in the two-year-old nursery next Sunday. <laughs> the main word you'll hear is, Mine! Mine, because that's the way we're born. We're born stingy. We ought to be born again generous. Because our heavenly father, of whom we have been born again, is a generous father. And his generous DNA ought to be with us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse number 6. Now listen, you can sow sparingly, you can give stingily, or you can give bountifully generously, look at verse number six, or verse seven, every man according as he purposes in his heart. Listen, 
If y'all listen and say amen, it's up to you. It is. It's up to you. You, you can give stingily or you can give generously. He says, you decide. He goes on, verse 7, and says, now, don't give grudgingly. That means with regret or you're mad or you're irritated or you're grieving. Don't give that way. And he says, don't give of necessity. It means under compulsion, obligation, because you have to. Somebody's pressured you into it. Don't give because of that. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the King James words that God loves a cheerful giver, understand, he loves a tightwad too, okay? But what he means is, God doesn't love a cheerful giver. God loves when we give cheerfully. God loves when we give happily, generously. So it says, you and I need to decide. Now, you know, uh, some of you may be thinking, well, you know, pastor, I mean, come on, I, I, you know, I don't really give, but I do other things, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm here Sunday morning, and I'm listening, and I'm learning, and, and I'm in a life group, and, and I'm, I, I teach Bible study, and I sing on the worship team, and I work in the ministries of service around, you know, parking or coffee shop or something, and I, I do mission trips, and I do all these things. You know, just giving's kind of not my deal. I want you to turn back to chapter number eight. Look at verse seven. Because I'm so grateful and, and God is honored by the things that you do. Listen to verse eight. I, I, he says, I speak not by commandment. I'm sorry, it's verse seven. Chapter eight, verse seven. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in diligence, in service, in love, as you abound in those things, see to it that you abound in this grace also. God says, I'm glad for the things you're doing, but I don't want you to do all those things and set aside generosity. I want you to abound in the grace of giving. Well, one more thing I want you to know, and, and hopefully this will encourage you if nothing else I've said has. And it is that when it comes to this issue of generosity, God promises to multiply and restore or return our generosity. This is in chapter number nine and verse number eight. Chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. Now, maybe, I don't know this, but maybe Paul was anticipating their protest. He's saying to them, hey, I've been bragging on you to the churches in Macedonia. And I, they, they're giving, and I want you to match their giving. They're giving generously. I want you to give generously. You know, the church in Jerusalem needs your help. And so I'm, I'm sending some folks to collect the offering. Now I want you to be ready and I want you to give. He's, this is all chapter 8 and chapter 9. And maybe he anticipates their protest. But wait, 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 wait Paul. If I give, then I'm not going to have enough for myself. And so he interjects. Do you see it in the next verse? Chapter number nine and verse eight. He interjects, and God is able. I want you to get, but Paul, if I get, God is able. But how will I, God's able. Do you see how he's interjecting? In the issue of giving, he says, here's what I want you to know. Regardless of what your protest is, just know this. God is able. That he can do anything, and he can make sure that you always have all sufficiency in all things, all the time, so that you can always abound unto every good work. People who don't choose generosity, people who don't live with generosity, 
choose not to because in some way, to some degree, they feel like if I give generously, I will have less. If I give generously from what I do have, I may not have enough left over from my own needs. And Paul says, God is able. And the people who say I can't give or I won't give because I won't then have enough or I won't have as much as I want, those people don't understand biblical economics. I talked about capitalism, socialism, communism. There's another economic system. It's biblical economics. And that's verse 8. God is able to provide everything that you need. And he tells them that in the context of giving. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter number 6 and verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure that you use to give, the same will be measured back to you. If you go into your kitchen of generosity and you open the drawer of your giving and you decide what to give, how am I going to measure out my giving? If you pull out a quarter teaspoon, little measuring cup, and you go, you give. You can do that. But then don't turn to God and say, oh, God, would you pour out the buckets of blessing in my life? Because Jesus said, well, I'm probably going to pull out my quarter of a cup or quarter of a teaspoon to measure back to you. He says, here's my promise to you. You give, I'll give back to you the same way that you live with generosity. Listen to Philippians 4 and verse number 19. My God shall supply all your need. How much of your need? Say it like you believe it. How much of your need? Now listen, folks, listen to me. Either God's lying to you and trying to trick you into the poorhouse or he's going to keep his word, one of the two. There's no in-between. One of those things is true. Either God's word is true and he will keep his promise to provide as we walk in his plan of generosity or God's a liar, one of the two. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, the promise of Scripture is that if we will choose generosity, because this is God's plan, it's the best way, if we'll choose it, then he's going to provide. This was illustrated in the life of a man who was a great Christian philanthropist and invested in the kingdom in ways that, that just were astounding to so many people. And somebody asked him once, they said, how do you do that? How do you give away so much? And he said, you know, the only thing I know to tell you is I just, it's like I have a shovel and I'm just shoveling out these investments into God's work. I just want to fund God's work wherever I can. And so as God leads me, I'm just shoveling. And he said, you'd think as I shovel, there'd be less to shovel from. But every time I put my shovel back, there's more there to shovel. And he said, the only thing I know to tell you is I'm shoveling out and God is shoveling in. And God's shovel's bigger than mine. That's the promise of Scripture. The only person made uncomfortable by a message at Brookstone or any other church on giving is a person who has chosen not to give. Because every person who has chosen to give understands that God's plan is good, it's best, and he keeps his word. So, Let's choose to be givers. Generous, hilarious, cheerful, 
givers. I've often said to you, we want to be the most, most generous church in Western North Carolina. Well, for that to happen, we have to be filled with the most generous people in Western North Carolina. There's one last thing I want to say, and that is simply to say that there are some of you who have never given your life to Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that he gave his life for you. He did. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave his son Jesus to die on a cross. Christ laid his life down and died for you. And now he says, Will you give your life to me in repentance and faith and trusting me as your Savior? Will you give your life to me? And if you've never given your life to Christ, then I'm going to invite you to give your heart to Jesus today. And if you've never given your life fully to Christ, maybe you've been born again, you've been saved, but there's still this holding back. Let me, let me encourage you, just give yourself fully to him. Just give your life away to him today. In fact, Paul said that's what the believers in Macedonia did. They gave their lives away. Chapter 8 and verse number 5 tells us this. It says, this they did, not as we had hoped, but first they gave their own selves to the Lord and then to us and then into this issue of generosity. Give your life to Christ. Give your life fully to Christ and then choose to give generously for all of your life and you will be walking in the path of joy.